This is Bach Talk. A great vocal soloist needs to master many skills. A strong technique is essential, of course. An understanding of the style in which one is singing is just as important. So is charisma and stage presence. The Bach Society of St. Louis, for example, finds soloists who meet all of these requirements. But there's more. Most soloists will tell you that they must, to some degree, become the very character they are portraying to get inside the skin and mind of the person in order to truly convey them and communicate them properly. It all makes perfect sense, of course. But what about when that character is the Son of God? What happens when one is called upon to sing the words that Jesus himself spoke in the Bible, words that provide the very foundation of faith for so many? How does one get into the mind of the Savior? It seems like an impossible task, yet that is exactly what Johann Sebastian Bach demands of a skilled bass soloist in his settings of the Gospel Passions. Today, we'll put that question and a whole lot more to a man who's been there many times. Stay right where you are for an enlightening, deep, thoughtful, yet fun-filled conversation with Dr. Stephen Morshek. Hello, I'm Ron Clem. Welcome to Bach Talk. Professor of Vocal Studies at the University of North Texas, Stephen Morshek has seen and experienced more than most. Name a prominent operatic bass role by Mozart, Verdi, or Rossini. Chances are Steve has sung it. Think of the bass solos in sacred choral masterpieces by Handel, Beethoven, and Brahms. Yep. In the past year, he's reprised the main oratorio roles in Haydn's creation and Mendelssohn's Elijah. Experience is the greatest teacher, they say, and Morshek's concert reviews demonstrate he has learned his lessons well. But perhaps his greatest claim to fame lies in his affinity for Bach and for playing the difficult role of Jesus in the Leipzig master's setting of the Passion story, as told in the biblical Gospels of Matthew and John. Dr. Morshek has sung these roles here in St. Louis several times. 
each occasion has brought a rich, fulfilling understanding of the mind and heart of Bach. We chatted with Steve in the Versailles room at the Hilton St. Louis Frontenac Hotel. With the help of editor Scott McDonald, we want to share that conversation. Let's start at the beginning with the beginning. Your early influences, let's start there. Sure. I was born in 1959 in Marshfield, Wisconsin, the last of four children, to uh, a pastor. And my mother, his wife, was the church organist and pianist and so forth. So uh, going to church was a huge part of our life. Music was also an important part of our life because of the fact that my mother played the piano and the organ. She enlisted all four children to be involved in some way. We all studied some instrument at some point during our schooling. I picked up the trombone that had been left over from my second brother and started making noise with it. And she said, well, you're going to have to take some lessons. And I eventually ended up playing the trombone all the way through high school. My voice changed a little bit earlier than most of my peers. And uh, my mother began enlisting me to sing little things at church and uh, encouraged me to also audition for the high school choir. I could hold my own in terms of singing and so forth and uh, got all the way my first try into the top choir in my high school. Of course. I was the only sophomore. And I even got a solo in my sophomore year. And that led to getting some of the leading roles in the next two years in the musicals that we did. And so I decided to pursue performing, which I didn't really understand what it was at the time, but I decided to, to attend college and study singing. You decided that or someone decided for you? I did. I don't, I would not say that my, my mother forced me by okay. any means or in, encouraged me. By that point, they, they let me decide and really, that was the strongest interest that I had. And at that point in my life, I did have a, I was a, not necessarily a proactive person. I was reactive. And so that seemed like the, the least path of resistance. I was getting a lot of positive responses from people hearing me sing and so forth. And I did, at that point, believe that Maybe the, I have been given some sort of gift in this way and so forth, and that it should be something that I should pursue. I did have a strong belief in God at that point and recognition that he was sovereign over these things in, in my, our lives, I believed, and so that perhaps this was something that he had for me to do. So I went away to college and studied voice for four years, and when I finished college, I wasn't so sure anymore. And where was that? Wheaton College outside of Chicago. And a lot of uh, influences along those lines, I would think. Yes, right. It was a, it's a Christian liberal arts college, yes. And I received excellent training there. But I also came to a point of, of uh, having to ask some serious questions about life in general. And I did discover at that point in my life that the way I viewed the world and the way I lived were largely, I think, I would say secondhand that I had picked up from my parents in terms of being a preacher's kid and what we did in our lives every week and so forth. So I took a year, I realized during my senior year in college that going on to grad school just because everybody else was doing it was not the thing to do. 
So I took a year off and worked as a janitor, the night shift, from 11 at night till 7.30 in the morning. During that year, I, I was searching, and I decided, I continued to go to church and so forth, but I believe that God brought into my life certain people so that I could sort these things out myself and uh, make a decision for myself, what I believed about the world, what I believed about the universe, what I believed about our purpose here on life. And so I did not walk away from the faith. I embraced it fully as my own. On your own? On my own, yeah. And that's how I uh, live my life, no matter if I'm a singer or if I were to be doing anything else in life. It's very clear to me that you must have immediately had an affinity for Bach and for the works of a, of, a, of a person who expressed the deepest parts of his heart and soul through his music. That's, that's actually a very profound statement that you have made. Because I'll tell you a story. My voice teacher at Wheaton College assigned to me for my senior recital one of Bach's great solo cantatas for the bass voice. It's cantata 82, Ich habe genug. It's, it's enough. Yeah, right? that's right. Yeah, that's right. And I learned the whole thing, memorized. All three arias, two restatives. We did, I did it with piano. So I sang it at modern pitch. I didn't even know what Baroque pitch was back then. Well, no, I, I still don't, <laughs> but that's another story. <laughs> and I loved the piece on all the different levels. And apparently, my teacher thought that it really fit me like a glove because he said to my mother, who came to, my mother and father came to this, my senior recital, and he said to my mother, he said something to this effect, that he's heard many people sing Bach, but your son sings Bach, he said. Something to that effect. And he, he never actually said that to me, that I recall, something my mother related to me uh, later on. Well, she didn't want it to go to your head. <laughs> yeah, probably. But I've always loved it so much. His music has always been, um, I have found it so enjoyable to sing. It's like medicine on my voice in some ways, but it's also so challenging. It's like mathematics in some ways. And as I've grown older and studied it more in depth and, and learned more about his life and how he essentially consecrated himself to and dedicated himself to composing music for the church, for worship. He certainly composed music that is not that way, other things that would be considered to be secular, but he, he pretty much focused himself only on composing music for the church. Um, that was my introduction to Bach. Do you see a parallel uh, between perhaps the greatest church musician of all and the work that you're doing now. So as, <laughs> as a preacher's kid, yeah. there was a pretty strong pull to consider being a preacher for my life's work. As opposed to being a church musician. Right. Interesting. Yeah. And um, I do want to proclaim, I do want to, to share this, what I believe with others, but to be able to do it with also this singing, there, there was a germ that began when I was in high school and that I have trained ever since I started. I have not stopped training. I have not stopped learning how to use this instrument as a delivery system for whatever I'm singing, whether it's something that is 
foundational to my faith, or whether it's something completely divorced from it, something that's entirely different. It may be an opera role of a character who is not anything near the part that I'm singing now in this particular piece. And you've done many of those. Yeah. yeah. Uh, how do you approach them? Do you approach them differently? If one is something very meaningful to you and the other is, eh, whatever, do you approach it with the same gusto, with the same uh, earnest, with the same approach? I endeavor to, yes. I endeavor to. I endeavor to bring everything that I can understand about why this character is the way they are, mm -hmm. what is what is in their worldview, what are, what are their desires and endeavor to bring that out as I sing, as, as whether I'm on stage or perhaps it's a, another oratorio, for instance, mm -hmm. to bring that to its fullest degree. I'll use another example, another oratorio. I've sung it many times, but it's the role of Raphael in Haydn's creation. So Haydn's creation, in addition to orchestra and chorus, there are three soloists. Depending upon how it's cast, there could be another two soloists that come at the end when you have Adam and Eve but I'm going to be singing both Adam and Raphael. So Raphael is an angel, and he stands up and talks about, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then later on, he says, and God made animals. He makes the tiger and the lion, and Haydn is very descriptive. Well, I approach it as if I've never been an angel, <laughs> Right, <laughs> But what would it be like to be an angel witnessing this happening out of nothing? There would be great joy. There would be great wonder. There would be awe. I've never seen a lion before, right? And that's what I try to bring to it as, a, as I sing it. It's also very enjoyable to sing the core of what may be going on in the text. bass baritone Stephen Morshek singing a short recitative from Bach's Christmas Oratorio in a performance by the Bach Society as part of the 2017 St. Louis Bach Festival. More of our conversation straight ahead. You're listening to Bach Talk. Bach, in his passions, uses soloists to convey the, the heart of the matter that's going on. But he also uses characters. One, and I'll talk just about the, the two main ones. One is the evangelist who basically tells the gospel story. The other is the character role of our Lord and Savior. You have sung that with the Bach Society on several occasions. How does one prepare to be Jesus? Ultimately, <laughs> you have to go to the text. It wouldn't hurt rather than just to study the actual passage. In the case of the St. Matthew Passion, for instance, Matthew 26 and 27, where that, all that text comes from, but also the greater theology behind what the New Testament, for instance, argues about who Jesus is, that he's fully God and fully man, and that has to be considered when you sing this part. 
how did how can that possibly be shown? Can we even understand that? Right. Then, of course, there's the understanding of the music itself. And Bach does this interesting thing. He wasn't the first to do it. But he gives to Jesus a very unique accompaniment. And that is what we would call restativa accompagnato, only with the strings. And it creates this aura around everything he says as the piece progresses. Again, it's restative. He's speaking. He's right. just simply speaking his text. Mm -hmm. But it's not as free as the, what the evangelist does. It has a, it's slightly more metered. It's conducted by the conductor. And it's consistent all the way through the St. Matthew Passion, except the very last thing Jesus says. And he's on the cross. So we have to figure out, well, what does that mean? Why does he do that? I teach a course at the University of North Texas where I'm on faculty there. Uh, so we talk about this piece as, as part of all these, these things. And the text that I use is written by a fellow named Michael Steinberg. And he refers to Bach as an inveterate musical illustrator. He illustrates what's happening in the text musically. And you can see it time and time again in this piece of St. Matthew. You have to look at the text, obviously. You have to try to gain an understanding of who Jesus is and who Bach thinks Jesus is. Uh, when Bach is composing for Jesus and the piece is going to be performed, not as a concert piece, not in some orchestra hall, it's going to be performed as part of a church worship experience. On Good Friday. On Good Friday. What is Bach thinking about it? You have to take all those things into consideration. Getting back to the string accompaniment, some people refer to it as the halo. It does create this sort of aura about Jesus. And if we're not careful, it makes Jesus sound like he's only of heavenly value, that he has no earthly, he's not, he doesn't have his feet on the ground. It can very easily, it can become so slow and sustained that you can't relate to this person. Hmm. The first time I did this work, I did it with conductor John Nelson, and he challenged me to find the humanity in how I delivered my text. That there are moments where Jesus gets very excited about and, and enthusiastic about the Word of God, but then there are times when he's simply speaking to the disciples. He encouraged me to think of that as being more free, not quite so slow and sustained. And so we played a lot with that. And, and I endeavor to keep that as I do the part now, as I sing it. That there are places where it moves ahead, where it has a little bit more sense of just every day, but you sense the humanity. And then there are moments where when Jesus starts talking about certain scripture being fulfilled by what's happening, or when he says of this same lady, what she has done for me is going to be told wherever this gospel is preached. And every time the St. Matthew Passion is performed, I'll add that as well, right? <laughs> that story is told of course, over, yeah. over and over. <laughs> exactly right. I When 
You are singing about matters of life and death, mm -hmm. the most profound texts that you can imagine and deliver them. And your instrument is in your body, the same place where all your emotions and all your, yeah, your soul lives, right? Surely there must be a technique to do that because I get a lump in my throat every time I try to sing some of you. How do you do that? You're nailing it right on the head. That is exactly one of the great mysteries about what we learn to do in this particular style of singing, which I'll call, I'll call bel canto, beautiful singing, no microphones. So we're responsible for our own projection. And we have to do what I believe, I, and I call as I teach it, we have to have an open throat. And what do emotions tend to do to our throats? They tend to close our throats. Literally, we have an expression for it. We get choked up. And the throat, the throat goes into more of a swallowing kind of position where it gets squeezed like that. And when we get up to sing, we have to have our throat open. So we have to find a way to have hot hearts, <laughs> passionate hearts, and cool minds as, as we do this. And that takes hours and hours, years of practice. But that is constantly the challenge that we have. The voice of bass baritone Stephen Morshak singing the words of Jesus in Bach's St. Matthew Passion from a concert by the Bach Society of St. Louis in the spring of 2023. Straight ahead, we'll hear from Professor Morshak and his approach to teaching aspiring young singers. You're listening to Bach Talk. You're a teacher. What attributes do you look for in a young singer besides the musical gift and the and the technique and the, the moldability that you can you can deal with what other things do you look for the the biggest thing i look for is what i'll just call thirst they're not satisfied just being told by me what to do they have a thirst to learn something to explore and they come in with I found this piece, Dr. Morshek. What do you think? Is this something I could do? Versus somebody who simply is content to just be told, do this, do this, do this, and that's all they'll do. Sometimes that, again, can be hard to discern immediately. But I can think of one, one student that I currently work with, and he was talking about listening to some Beethoven quartet and this particular phrase within this quartet and how... The bass line moved or something like that. And I, and I know that I've, I have no idea what Beethoven quartet he's talking about. <laughs> and, I, and I played jokingly. I said, oh, yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. And then I, <laughs> and then I laughed. And then I laughed. Be, because, I mean, he's a tremendous example of someone who's very, very thirsty. 
he he discovers new music, music that about from all different angles. He's not going to be able to sing it all in one lifetime. The kinds of things that he's interested in. What is the one thing you wish you could teach some people? Oh my word. <laughs> well, the list must be long. <laughs> no. If you can talk, you can sing. Because because the same two vocal folds that come together in your throat, in your larynx, to vibrate, to produce tone, mm-hmm. anything you say, grunting, speaking, okay? If you, you, if you have the ability to do that, then you have the ability to sing. Because what singing is, is sustained speech. Is there such a thing as being tone deaf? Well, I, I do not have the authority to say no. Or yes, either way, I don't know for sure. But I do know that people who I've been, who have come to me and said they're tone deaf, or a student, for instance, that's come in who couldn't match pitch, eventually they were able to learn to match pitch. It seems to be a coordination of within the brain and the laryngeal nerves to understand that they, they can match pitch. This particular young man was a rock singer. And he came to study music business. And he had to have an instrument. And voice became his instrument. And I, as the new teacher on the block, he was assigned to me. (laughs) And he came in the first day, and I started plunking the notes on the piano for him to sing along, and he couldn't do it. I was also teaching, at that same time, a voice class. A voice class for non-voice music majors. So your trumpet players, your flutists, your oboists, and so forth, string players. They had to take a voice class. They took it with me. And they were going to have to be, they were music educators. They were going to be going into schools. And they might become the subject matter voice expert in their school. So I had a local teacher come in who taught junior high choir. And this choir director talked about the particular challenges for boys when their voices change, when they go through puberty, and how their voices change, and they oftentimes lose the ability to match pitch, and how she solved it. And she solved it by having them come up to the upright piano, not a grand piano, but an upright conventional piano, and stand with their hands on the back side of the sounding board. Really? And she would begin to play simple scales and so forth, and they would feel the vibrations, and somehow they began to translate that into their throats, and they began to be able to match pitch. That's fascinating. Not instantaneously, but it works. Eventually. That's what I did with this young man, this rock singer. And by the time he had to do his, his recital, he was matching pitch, and he was able to sing songs where the pitch was independent from the accompaniment. If you can speak, if you can grunt, if you can say, mm-hmm, that is a pitch. That is a pitch already. It's got vibration. Vibration, by definition, is going to have a frequency. Right. And all you have to do is then sustain that. That is complicated. That takes an understanding of your breath. Right. And, and the, the, how the throat should feel. The and science so of it. Yeah. And, and that's what teaching yeah. is all about, is yeah. understanding how that all works. That's right. I love to, at the end of a, a conversation, just kind of give you a couple of quick hits. Uh, I don't have one here, but if I had a trombone here and asked you to pick it up, what would be the thing you'd toot on the, on the trombone? What would, be the, what would be the first thing you'd play? That was 40 years ago. Just, just, just guess. 
I do know what I would play. I would play... Yeah. Tuba mirum from the Mozart Requiem. <laughs> My favorite. What piece do you, you cannot live without? I've told this to many, many people. St. Matthew Passion. <laughs> that's, no, that's a no-brainer for me. <laughs> Bach, St. Matthew Passion. That is my desert island piece. If you had to do something else other than teach and perform, what would it be? One of two things. I'd go back and I would, I would study history or geology, a different kind of history. Why but geology? Of, I've, I've always been fascinated by it. I had a teacher when I was a junior in high school, Mr. Welchin, and he had a huge handlebar mustache. You know, I Googled him, and he's still living as far as I know. And he made that topic come alive so wonderfully. He would draw these amazing schematics, cutaways of the sides of mountains and showing all the various rock layers. And he'd use different colored chalk to show these rock layers and how this avalanche was caused and so forth. He made it so interesting and he made it so enjoyable. It's always fascinated me. Well, you've been a joy and, 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 a, and a blessing and, and just a, a great uh, fun time to sit here and talk with you. So thank you so very much. You're welcome. And we look forward You're to welcome. seeing you again. Thank you very much. We leave you today as we began with Grosser Herr, Mighty Lord, from Bach's Christmas Oratorio. Bass baritone Stephen Morshek and the Bach Society Orchestra, conducted by music director and conductor A. Dennis Sparger. All of our musical portions today, taken from concerts by the Bach Society, as captured by Grammy Award-winning recording engineer Paul Henrich. Guests of the Bach Society stay at the Hilton St. Louis Frontenac Hotel, featuring old world charm at the intersection of comfort and convenience. Subscribe to Bach Talk wherever you get your podcasts. Learn more at BachSociety.org. Our associate producer is Scott McDonald. Marketing and technical assistance provided by Andy Murphy and Carissa Marciniak of The Right Relations. Bach Talk is a trademark of the Bach Society of St. Louis. I'm Ron Clem.